0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. That is on page 959 in the Bible that is in the back of the pew in front of you. Again, we're starting with 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Susie. Grace and peace to all of you this morning. So, have the first slide, Jesse. You all know who these three people are? Anybody raise their hand. You all know who all three of those people are? You know who two of them are? You know who one of them is? Good. So Augustine, Martin Luther, and Tim Keller. I could have put up John Piper. I could have put up Matt Chandler. I could have put up Billy Graham. I could have put up John Calvin. There's a lot of great teachers now and there are a lot of great teachers that have been in the history of the church that we know and that we're grateful to know. We're grateful to God that we know them and grateful to God that God has given them to the church. Next slide. You know who those two are. We really should. Because if those two men had had their way, we would not have Augustine, Martin Luther, Tim Keller, John Calvin, etc. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity today to look into your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us your grace and your understanding, that we might know our faith better, that we might know how to stand against false teachers. We pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Excuse me. We're in the beginning of a series on 1 John. That's the idea that we are primarily promoting during this time. A joyful assurance in Jesus. A joyful assurance. We are permitted, in fact, we are expected to be confident that we are saved. To be able to say bluntly, I know that I am saved. I know I have a relationship with God. I know... I know that I am in fellowship with Christ and with God the Father. This book was written to a church or a group of churches that had lost a group of people. We don't know how many. We don't know who they were. And in fact, it's the passage that we're going to look at today that we actually begin to see and understand that a bit more. But whoever these people were, their leaving the fellowship had shaken the faith of those that remained behind. They obviously had some sort of influence. They obviously had some sort of attraction, either what they said, what they taught, or whatever. And John wants to address those that remain and give them a sense of assurance, this confidence in who Jesus is, this confidence in the gospel, and this confidence in the fact that they are saved. To do that throughout this epistle, he says several times, by this we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. He wants to emphasize this over and over again. That's the claim that Christians can say in this world that's so filled with relative knowledge to be able to say, I know this to be true, is a pretty profound statement. And to do that, to build their assurance, to strengthen their assurance, he brings up three major topics. We might call them tests. We might call them characteristics. We might call them uh, attributes. But these three things are the issues that John wants the readers to focus on and to understand. The first one would be righteousness. The first one would be obedience. Righteousness, walking in the light, walking in the light of the revelation of the gospel, obeying that, following Jesus, walking on his path. We've seen that already. Secondly, there's the issue of relationship, of love. We know that John talks about in the Gospel and all the other Gospels that we are to love our enemies, we are to love our neighbors, but the emphasis here is upon loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to do that with a reality, to do that in deed and in truth and not just in word and in intent. Last week we saw that there is also an aspect of discernment that goes in that, that we are not to love the world. We are not to love this rebellious system that is against God. But the third test is the one that we're talking we're talking about today. We've already seen that a little bit in the first four verses of the book. The third test is the issue of doctrine. The third test is an issue of teaching. The third test is faithfulness and loyalty to the gospel. So the passage that Susie read for us is John chapter 2 verses 18 to 27. That's where we're going to be today. The main theme that I want us to grasp. The main thing that I think John wants us to see is this. Don't let false teachers rob you of what you know to be true. Rob you of the joy and peace and confidence you can have in the gospel. So he's exposing who these people are, exposing this group that is left, and saying that group is over here, that group has characteristics that are not part of us, and we are over here with differing characteristics, and they are wrong. They are false. One of the things about false teachers and the issue of false teaching in the scriptures is just how profoundly, I'll use this term advisedly, naked The statements are about these people. Profoundly colorful these statements are because we need to unmask false teaching, which often presents itself as some sort of attractive thing. And for us to be able to understand who these false teachers are, John and Paul and Jesus and others do that for us. So the main idea, again, don't let false teachers rob you of the confidence we have, the joy and peace and confidence we have, the fact that we know the truth in the gospel, the very first point that he wants us to see in these, passage, in these verses is this. We need to know who the false teachers are. We need to know who they are and what they do. That's why, just as it's important for us to know Augustine and Martin Luther and Tim Keller, it's also important for us to know Arius and Marcion, those two men that you saw that no one knew who they were. We need to know who the false teachers are, we need to know what they do. look at two eighteen with me, please. children different term by the way, than is used throughout the book. this book here, this term here is educated ones, learned ones, those who have been taught children it is last hour and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared from this. we know that it is. The last hour. Lots of people have talked about this from Jesus to Paul to Peter to Jude. This concept of the last days and this concept of false teaching is not something that just shows up occasionally in the New Testament. If you stop and think about, for instance, Matthew 24 or Luke 21 or Mark 13, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Peter, Jude, Revelation, 2 John, and now you get the impression, wow, the idea of false teaching, the idea of false doctrine, it occurs a lot because it's a significant point. It's a significant thing for us to be able to understand what false teaching is so that we can understand the truth more deeply and more richly. All these people have raised the issue of false teaching, and every one of them have touched upon the concept of the last days. So we've been in the last days since Jesus came. 2 Timothy 3, Hebrews 1, talks about that. So if people walk around and say, are we in the last days? You should all say, of course we are, and we have been since Jesus came. But notice here, it's not the last days, it's last hour. For John, the idea of hour, especially in the Gospel of John, my hour has not come. The nadir, the zenith point of Jesus' coming and Jesus' redemptive work is fulfilled at the cross. That's when his hour is fulfilled. And here, the last hour is the final conclusion, as it were, of Jesus' redemption. We have entered into that, and John says the key point to show us that is what? It's that the Antichrists have come. Not the Antichrist. Not the one talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2 or in Revelation 13. But Antichrists have come. That's the point I want us to see right away at the beginning. Notice I said we need to know who these people are, and we need to know what they do. How many of us would actually go up to somebody and say, you are an antichrist? Most of us would not. Most of us would rebel against that. Most of us would step back, even from using the language that John uses, which is fairly tame compared to Jude or Second Peter 2. But John says it very bluntly. Take the mask down. These people are antichrists. The antichrists have appeared. Therefore, we know, he says, it is the last hour. He's not identifying an individual. He's talking about their quality. So what does antichrist mean? It means someone who is opposing Jesus. Someone who stands against Jesus. Someone who is an enemy of Jesus. Or someone who takes the place of Jesus. John wants us to understand these false teachers are in that category. These people that believe what they believe about Christ are opposed to who Jesus is. Think about what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the Antichrist, the individual, the beast of Revelation 13. He calls him this, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's Antichrist. Putting himself in the position of God. And these people have adopted that characteristic. That's how John wants us to see them, to understand who they are. But not only that, they deny who Jesus is. They're opposed to Christ. They're an enemy of Christ. Notice what it says in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is what they're doing. This is their teaching. They are not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. We understand this not to just be a Jewish issue, but as we saw earlier on in the first part of chapter 1, they are denying that Jesus came in human flesh. They are denying the humanity of Christ. Whatever their view of that, in terms of our historical speculation as to which one of the things they believed, Jesus' humanity was denied. In that sermon that I preached on those passages, we talked about just how important that is for our salvation, not just the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ and all that means for our salvation. These people are those who deny, deny that Jesus is the Christ. But notice what it says in verse 23, the one who confesses the Son has the Father. If you deny the Son, you deny the Father. We saw that in John chapter 5. If you go back to John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about those who want to honor the Father, who say they follow God, who say they have a relationship with God, from Jesus' perspective, need to have a relationship with Jesus. So if you reject Jesus, you are therefore rejecting the Father. If you deny Jesus, you are therefore denying the Father. Those of us in this group, he wants us to understand, we are those who confess the Son. We are the ones who raise our hand and say, yes, for us, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus came in the flesh. Yes, Jesus is our Savior. Yes, we know who he is. Notice what he says in verse 26. Further understanding. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you trying to deceive you. They're trying to pull you away from the truth. They are trying to attract you from the group that we are a part of to their group, and they are doing it with their teaching. They are doing it with their teaching about life. They are doing it with their teaching about who Jesus is. Unmask who these people are. Their default setting. Their default setting. Antichrist, against Christ, enemy of Christ... Those who deny Jesus, those who are liars, the liar, and then lastly, those who are trying to deceive you. For John, that's important. For John, it's an important understanding. If the people over here are going to have an assurance that we are right that we are in the truth. This people that have left, again, we don't know who, we don't know how many, we don't know how influential, but John certainly sees the possibility that people could slide over to this group over here. He wants us to understand who they are and what they are doing so that they can have that joyous assurance, we are in the right. We are in the truth. We are the ones who have the Father and have the Son And have that relationship, that eternal life with God. And these people over here, their character, their ongoing character, their default setting is one that is totally opposite what we are and who we are. But he doesn't stop there. He wants us to know that the things that we know are effective in our life. He wants us to recognize that because we have the Spirit of God and because we have the gospel, this group over here, we have more than what these people might offer to us, better than what these people might offer to us, more good, more beautiful, more perfect. Notice verse 20 and then verse 27. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, an anointing from the Holy One, The anointing here is the Holy Spirit. The anointing is the Spirit of God that's given to us when we trust in Christ. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us. He indwells us. He's baptized us. He seals us. He's anointed us. And as a result of that, he says, you all know. You all know. This anointing, this setting us apart as it were, for God's use, involves, at least here, our knowledge. The Spirit of God is one who gives us knowledge about who Christ is, gives us an assurance of who Christ is, gives us an ability to say, as we saw way back in that first sermon, Romans 8.16, the Spirit of God testifies to my spirit that I am a part of Jesus, that I am a son of God. The Spirit of God This anointing that we have helps us to know. We all know, verse 27. And as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. That doesn't deny the importance of the teaching role in the church. What he's saying is you have no need for these people over here to teach you. They claim to have special knowledge. They claim to have special teaching. They claim to have something new that's more attractive. But you really have no need because the Spirit of God teaches you. You have no need of their doctrine, no need for their teaching. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, all things related to the gospel, all things related to Jesus, all things related to the truth, He is true and not a liar, and just as he has taught you, you abide in him. So we, over here on this side, we have remained. These people have gone out from us. These people have left us, John says. The result of their leaving us is us understanding they were not part of us in the first place. We who abide, we who remain, we who stay within the fellowship, have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That Spirit of God is teaching us the truth. We know. We all know. So as these people over here cry out their teaching, cry out that we should join them, we should be able to say no. No, that's wrong. That's false. That's in error. What the Spirit of God does, what the Spirit of God teaches is the truth. But not only that, we have the gospel, and we have heard it, and that gospel is to remain in us also. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. You over here in this group, it's not that you don't know the truth, it's because you do know the truth, and that no lie is of the truth. Verse 24, and as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, which is what? the truth of the gospel. Not let it just abide, let it stay, not let it be pulled away by the false teachers, but let it abide, let it be effective in your lives as you think about this group and as you struggle in your faith, as you recognize, huh, those people look so attractive, what they're saying sounds so reasonable, it sounds so legitimate, maybe I should go with them. No, let the truth of the gospel be effective. Let it abide in your heart and your life. Let the reality of that message Strengthen your heart with regard to the truth. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Isn't that great? So the abiding of the gospel in our hearts assures us of the truth that we are in relationship with God the Father and with God the Son. And we can rest in that. We can have that expectation. We can have that joyful assurance as these people over here are teaching these other doctrines. John says the exact opposite. Therefore, let the gospel abide in you, verse 25. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So the gospel itself promises, the gospel itself gives, the gospel itself provides, through the message and through what God himself does in it, eternal life, relationship with God, knowing God, fellowship with God, abiding with God, all of those saying the same basic thing. For John, in this passage, as he's helping this group face the reality of this group that is left, again, potentially influential group, wondering what they're saying, teaching all these things, John wants us to recognize who they are and what they do. To admit that, to see that, to understand that. And then to allow that which we have, the Spirit of God and the gospel, to truly affect our life. So the main idea, again, is what? Don't let these false teachers, don't let any false teachers, don't let any false teaching rob you of the truth that you know. Rob you of the joy and assurance and peace and confidence that we can have in the gospel. So what does that mean for us today? How can we apply that? The first point for me is this. False teaching is always around, all the time. It's a perennial problem. For us to recognize that is important. One part of the pulpit ministry of the church, of any church, of this church, is for this pastor here, for anybody preaching from this pulpit here, to be able to say to people, that is wrong, this is right. The problem is false teaching works, guys. It works. It draws people away. It seems attractive. It seems to be good. It seems to have a beauty to it. It seems to have coiffed hair and smiling faces and draws people in. And people say, hey, that's a big church. That's a big group. We ought to go to that. And because it works, we need to recognize what it is. We need to understand how it affects us. As we look at church history, As we look at church history, the early parts of church history, Christology, the study of Christ, the doctrine of Christ and the Trinity, were the issues that were being raised and were being clarified in the various councils. Then we come to the Reformation and we got the issue of soteriology and the importance of the gospel and what the gospel is and what salvation means as well as Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and the authority of the church. Then we had the issue of liberal theology, folks. Liberal theology. You know what liberal theology did? It basically said, how, how can we make Christianity and the gospel more palatable so that more and more people will come to church? So let's eliminate things like the supernatural. Let's eliminate things like creation and talk about evolution. Let's do anything we can to somehow pull the message back so that we can make the gospel palatable so more and more people will come to Christ. And we have, praise God, for people like Jay Gresham Machen who would be able to say, that's not even Christianity. That's not even Christianity. What's the issues today? When we think about false teaching today, what are some of the things that we struggle with? I would say that right now, as just as it was Christology earlier on than soteriology, this day's it's anthropology. It's gender. It's sexuality. It's marriage. It's who's a man and who's a woman. It's what the image of God is. And those things, as they run around, based on the expressive individualism that Carl Truman talks about, or politics, putting those two things together... The church is being struck by those things. Christians are being challenged on those things. Is what the Bible says about those things true? Or is what other people say about those things true? And for some some of us, we can be unaware that those issues are important, unaware that there is false teaching being taught. We can misunderstand what love means in a situation like this. Oh, if we just love these people, we'll get them in the church, we'll get them saved. Or we can even think that these issues are not important. So for us as believers, thinking about an application of this today, we say, all right, Christology is important. We understand Christ. But anthropology, less important, not a big deal. Let's slide those aside. Let's get more people in. Let's let's accept this. And I wonder if Paul and Peter and Jude and Jesus would have said the same thing. Secondly, we need to know what the truth is about all teaching. We need to know our Bibles better. We need to know our Bibles well enough to be able to defend the truth, and we need to be able to help those who struggle, who have problems, who have issues, who have questions about these issues, whether it be anthropology or soteriology or Christology. Because those perennial issues of false teachers being out there and floating around for us to be able to help individuals come to a knowledge and understanding of the truth, for us to honor God's word, honor God's word, with regard to our stance on God's word, especially in those areas where the world is raising their flag, where politics is on the side of certain things, where the issues are, if we stand true to the scriptures, we will be shamed, we will face persecution, whether it be verbal or other things, Those are especially the places where we say, Well, the Bible seems to indicate this. Show me from the Bible that your position is right, not just from argumentation and logic. Show me from the Bible and help everybody to come to grips with that. We need to be a little bit more like C.S. Lewis, who in discussions with people in Oxford would turn to people with only the way C.S. Lewis could say, I challenge that. That's not right. And we need to do it in a Christian way. And then lastly, I think we should praise God for the Spirit of God and the gospel. Praise God that the Spirit of God indwells us. He's baptized us. He's sealed us. He's anointed us. He teaches us. Praise God for the Spirit of God, the shy member of the Trinity, who points to Jesus and makes Jesus big, but helps us to understand and helps us to apply the scriptures. Praise God for the gospel and all that it means, the death and resurrection of Christ, and how he has freed us from the authority of sin, how he has given us forgiveness of sin, how he has anoint—excuse me placed us in a relationship of fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. We know, folks. We know that we know that we are saved. We know that we know We also know why we know. And we also know it is worth it to know. Let's pray. Please pray with me silently. This is not an easy passage, I'm sure, for you to apply. It wasn't an easy sermon for me to make or to get application for. Pray silently with me that the Lord would use this passage in your lives to bring about true gospel change.